You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me, um, as he does every week, is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm very well. I trust all our listeners are well and uh, looking forward to uh, an exciting holiday season. Yes, well, this episode, and I think probably uh, one more episode to go before we, uh, before, we, before we break up for summer. Look, there's a few things to discuss this week. Um, it's been quite a busy um, last couple of weeks, as is often the case, just before Christmas. We do have a couple of interviews with the executives from uh, NeoN and um, also from Oricon, and that's about the Tesla Big Battery. They put out a big report last week about the performance of the Tesla Big Battery in its first year, and that's quite significant because we haven't had a big battery before, and now we've had one. We've been able to see how it works, and we can look forward to a lot of other batteries being um, joining the grid now and into the future. But David, I just wanted to start off. Um, Clean Energy Council data put out this week. It's um, quite interesting, but it never. It, we are quite aware that there's been this huge boom in investment in wind and solar. But um, their data, which tells us that twenty billion dollars of new wind and solar projects are under construction or about to start construction, and they say that that does not include the six billion dollars which has already been completed sometime in two thousand and eighteen. So another 14,000 megawatts, they say, of wind and solar and storage. I guess it's it's an extraordinary result. I guess the question is, um, it's going to be, one way or another, quite a big cliff to fall off um, in the years ahead. Well, those numbers are certainly uh, a lot larger than my numbers. uh, and, And I guess I'd be treating them with a certain amount of caution. Um, the last time I looked, the actual wind and solar share of NEM production recently is up to about 15%, uh, which is good, but it's not 25 or 30% or 40 or still less 50%. Um, uh, and there's a lot of projects that are still very slow to ramp up and a lot that are, have yet to get going. Uh, I've been working off about 8 gigawatts, which very broadly is plus rooftop solar, and eight gigawatts behind, in front of the meter is about $16 billion. But anyway, you look at it, it's at least a 10% increase to supply. And it makes me very irritated the way the mainstream media has been so slow to pick up on this actual investment. And the claim is that there is no investment. And, and so I get grumpy about that. And th- that investment has come because of high prices. Now that's been the high REC price and it's been the high electricity price. So this idea that markets don't work, I think we can uh, dismiss that. And and the high prices uh, are actually working very effectively. And I I think everyone listening to this podcast should should really consider that carefully. No, look, I think that's a um, a very good point. Um, It was interesting to note from these these statistics that uh, Queensland, the two states leading the way, Queensland and Victoria, and both by a significant margin, are the two states with state-based policies. Um, I think in Queensland it was a case of about $7 billion and Victoria not too far behind. Trailing them, despite being the most popular state, is New South Wales. And um, we had New South Wales come under the scrutiny a bit last week at the Smart Energy Council. And uh, you wrote a very strong 
strong piece um, for Renew Economy last week. I thought it was a very, very good one. Can you just remind listeners of um, what your beef was? Well, my beef mainly is that, uh, and um, Amy Keane, who's the New South Wales renewable energy advocate, made the point quite strongly by putting a table in there showing that there is basically only 1,800 megawatts of uh, uh, connection capacity to the grid at the moment. And 1,000 of that is in the southern area tied up around Snowy Hydro, which I personally expect to be a big mess uh, because of what's also going on in Victoria with transmission. So really, there's not enough transmission connection. Now, we had speeches from uh, Don Harwin, who's the New South Wales Minister for Energy, and also Adam Searle, who's the opposition spokesman, outlining essentially both parties' positions going into the New South Wales election. Subsequently, we've seen a poll uh, of what voters care about in New South Wales, and electricity policy wasn't even on the list. So I guess I'm uh, only, only preaching to a very small group here. But the main point I want to make is that, and I think it's not a new point, but it remains very important, is that the New South Wales coal stations are all going to close mostly over the next 15 years. There's no transmission capacity to hook up their replacements or very limited. And New South Wales' share of the new investment, as you just made the point, is less than their share of installed capacity, less than their share of energy consumed. The share of households with rooftop in New South Wales is less than in Queensland and South Australia, despite having plenty of rooftop space. So in general, I think that we're falling behind in New South Wales and New South Wales uh, uh, is running a risk that uh, I would like to see mitigated as soon as possible. One interesting piece came in um, your question to the uh, New South Wales Energy Minister, Don Harwin, and uh, Minister Harwin seemed to be unaware um, that the New, South Wa- the, state, the New South Wales grid was actually a very, very large um, importer um, of electricity. In f- or was it a question from you or from Simon Holmes' court? I quite rem- can't quite remember. But um, he said, no, 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 I don't think that's the case. But um, it quite obviously is the case. And uh, as, you, as you point out, New South Wales has all these coal plants due to retire over the next 15 years, and it needs new uh, generation and the um, the cheapest generation as Malcolm Turnbull pointed out is obviously going to be wind and solar backed up by some some form of storage. Well Malcolm Turnbull made a lot of points he says the gas price has gone down due to his efforts but actually it hasn't gone down the gas price has gone up at the moment and I don't think he's accomplished anything with his jaw burning there uh, but let's leave Malcolm to one side he's yesterday's uh, almost hero um, uh, the, 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 the New South Wales is an importer. It imported about uh, 8% of its energy last year. Uh, and most years it actually imports more. The reason why the import share fell a little bit last year is because of the closure of Hazelwood, which meant that Victoria was late, less able to export. Um, we haven't got enough new investment yet in New South Wales to replace uh, uh, Liddell. So, uh, you know, we really got to get on with it and we need a circuit breaker. Some of the policies that Don Harwin has announced are actually potentially quite good policies and I don't want to be too critical. Even for households, a sector I don't care about as much as nearly everyone else does, but even for households, you can now go down to a New South Wales like a RTA service centre and ask for some electricity advice. And he says that for people who've actually taken their advice and switched electricity providers, they're saving $500 off their average bill. Well, that's pretty bloody good. Uh, 
Uh, yes. Also, his policy for household batteries is, is quite good, but it's just tiny. It's just far too small to make any real difference. Yeah. Just before we get on to some of the investment signals for new um, for for, uh, for major companies, I want to come on to Origins Investor Day last week and some comments from Energy Australia. I just want to touch off on one more thing, mate. Malcolm Turnbull. I know you think he's um, yesterday's man, and to to many extents he is. There's one thing that really struck me about what he said, though, um, during his speech and in his comments afterwards. The first one was his complaint that it was the white right wing and the ideologues and the idiots and the uh, right wing of the party that uh, refused to believe that wind and solar and storage were cheaper than new coal generation and therefore a great impediment to um, to um, policies that would encourage new investment. But then he sort of said, um, well, um, he, I, I don't know what's more disappointing, the fact that you get people who don't believe that uh, wind and solar are cheaper, or people like Turnbull who say they do accept that wind and solar are cheaper, yet when put on the spot, said no, he didn't want to actually increase the scale of the targets. And I think that's an interesting point because it just it just sort of highlights, I think, the deadlock even within the moderates and the Liberal Party and the coalition about sort of embracing these new technologies. And I'm not really too sure what the issue is there, but um, I found it a bit frustrating. But of course, we have a Giles, policy Giles, you, you can't care about the sector and take what the Liberal Party federally says seriously it is just impossible uh, I, and 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 i don't take what i i see no hope there now, this is why i i do advocate uh for the policies that mark butler has outlined because i think they're clear and sensible policies it will have to be managed the transition uh does have to be managed carefully but the policies clearly provide uh, a straightforward way uh, forward and if you can't get a uh, some form of NEG, which he said he preferred and is a market-based solution in the end, uh, then you have the backstop of having the CEFC doing the reverse auctions. And I think that's a perfectly adequate way to go also. Well, you're not the only person to have those views because uh, we heard that from um, Origin Energy in their Investor Day presentation last week make it, made it very clear that they're very unhappy with the policy situation and they wouldn't be taking any steps forward until it was clarified. That's right, and Graham Bradley, who's the chairperson of Energy Australia, an ex-head uh, of the uh, business uh, BCA, uh, made very similar points. I mean, it, the, it, the, the Angus Taylor's policy, uh, supported by Scott Morrison, the, the big stick is just a disgraceful piece of legislation. I mean, you, you know, we could have picked on food prices, but look, I went and put some petrol in the tank the other day, and it's quite clear there's a gross oligopoly running petrol prices in Australia. Uh, but no one says anything about it. I mean, the electricity industry has been picked on because it's not what management is doing doesn't suit what the what I can only call the bully boys in government actually want them to do. And, and, and they've come up, as I said, with a policy that is just indefensible to almost by almost any standard. And, if you know, if the Labor Party came up with that policy and elements, frankly, of, of what uh, I heard at the beginning of Adam Searle's speech weren't necessarily all that different. Uh, I wouldn't support that either. You have to have a long-term policy with sensible objectives and sensible means a fast rate of decarbonisation uh, and using the tools which are the solar and cheap wind economies plus the emerging economies of uh, storage uh, to get on with decarbonising uh, and increasing security uh, as fast as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, the um, the one big investment decision we are awaiting on, and um, I guess we're going to hear about it before Christmas, we haven't really heard much about it, is Snowy Hydro and Snowy 2.0. Have you heard anything um, in the breeze about this? 
No, I've heard nothing more about that. So, I, But you're right that a decision is expected. Uh, we still have also, uh, in terms of forthcoming news, Giles, that I think is important uh, that whatever the ESB and the COAG Energy Council is going to decide, I don't actually know when that meeting is. They don't publish uh, the date of it ahead. Do you know anything about the timing? It's, ne it, it's now next week, yes. So I think the 20th or the 21st, but yeah, quite late in the piece. Um, wouldn't be the 21st, actually, it'll be the Friday. So I, th I think it's uh, mid to late next week. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's still actually, as you say, everyone wants to get as much done as possible before they go off on holidays. And we'll know whether 2019 is going to be an exciting year because if it is, all the investment bankers will be back at work very early in January and the policy makers. Uh, but in this case, I actually expect, uh, you know, we're going to be stalled at a federal level and all the focus is going to be here in New South Wales, which uh, will still be the, the um, uh, first election, I think. Okay, well, look, now we might actually just have listened to some of these interviews um, about the Tesla big battery. Um, so that obviously came into action uh, just over a year ago. Um, it's really impressed a lot of people, um, well, both the owners and the developers and the market operator and the network operators. Um, over the last year, we're now seeing another couple of batteries being connected in Victoria, the Ganawara battery and the Ballarat battery. Both have quite different functions to the Tesla big battery in South Australia, whose official name, I should point out, is the Hornsdale Power Reserve. And there's a, another bunch of batteries coming on their way. So it's really interesting to get an insight into how this has worked and what it's achieved. So I got to speak last week to Xavier Barbaro, and he's the CEO of uh, NeoN, which is a French-based renewable energy developer that's just listed on the International Stock Exchange, and Garth Heron, he's the development manager with NeoN in Australia. This is the first anniversary of the, uh, what was commonly known as the Tesla big battery, but I think you guys prefer to refer to it as the Hornsdale Power Reserve because you do own it, and uh, it is at Hornsdale, and that's its official name. Xavier, um, tell us about the first year. Has it delivered what you expected or has it gone beyond your expectations? I think it went beyond everybody's expectations. Um, it's a fantastic tool. Um, the performance is, um, is spectacular and we, um, we have used it even more often than was, was forecasted. The, um, the impact on the battery, not only in South Australia, but more broadly in Australia, has been proven in, in the uh, publication this morning of the Oricon report. Uh, precisely shows uh, that we have had an impact um, much beyond was, was, uh, which was expected. Um. So it's had an impact in just um, assisting grid stability and grid st security. It's also had these other impacts about reducing costs overall to consumers. And I presume it's also delivered a handy return to uh, NeoN as well. The, uh, the savings that have been generated by this battery are estimated to be at $40 million just for the first year of operation. And of course, it will be in operation for more than, than 10 years. Um, it's a profitable asset, but for good reasons, because we use it more and more often. And, um, and we do that because we are the most competitive source of um, ancillary services to the grid. So we provide a reliable and very competitive service to the grid. And this is the reason why, um, why we make profit. Um. You are currently constructing another battery at the Balgana Wind Farm in South Australia. And I think you have plans for more batteries around Australia. Can you just sort of give a broad idea about um, how many and why and what they will do? The battery that we are building is in Victoria. 
which, uh, which shows that we have um, a larger footprint um, in Australia today than, than one year ago. So we have storage in Western Australia, in South Australia and um, in Victoria. And we believe that there are different business models. Uh, what those assets have in common is the fact that they, um, let's say that they are useful in, in different ways. So we supply electricity to a copper mine in Western Australia. We supply uh, electricity and we provide services to the grid in South Australia. We stabilize the output of a wind farm in Victoria. So different business models, different needs, um, but all of them are relevant and all of them uh, make economic sense. And that's what's happening today in Australia and, and more broadly in the world. Storage is, is happening for good reasons. It's not a matter of subsidies or anything like that. Because we're often told that uh, battery storage is expensive and not competitive. Um, what's your view of it? There are some strong business cases for storage. It's not universal yet, but what we have done in Australia and what we are doing abroad um, uh, is happening for good reasons. Again, uh, those projects um, work well. Uh, they provide good services, competitive services. The reason why the Honsdale Power Reserve um, is uh, is working so well is is um, is let's say proof of that, and we have displaced some other um, fossil fuels uh, from from the, the mix because we provide better and more competitive service. It's not again a matter of being subsidized or anything like that. It's really uh, pure economic uh, reasons. Just like to turn to you, thanks, Garth. Um, in the presentations that we've just heard this morning about the performance of the battery, it was described as the heartbeat of the grid. Can you explain that to our listeners? <laughs> yeah, look, I'll have a go. Um, it's always dangerous to uh, to ask an engineer to come up with some uh, some some analogies, but uh, I'll do it my best. So, the, the frequency in Australia um, is is nominally fifty hertz, and um, but what we have. As changes in generation and changes in uh, changes in load happen across the network, that frequency moves around a little bit. Um, so there's a normal frequency operating band uh, of a plus and minus 0.2 of a hertz, so 50.2 down to 49.8. While the frequency is in that zone, um, everything everything is going well. That's like having a good resting heartbeat, right? That's that's the blood's circulating around your body. Things are going well. Um, when you have a when you have a short short in the network, or if you have a sudden loss of generation, that heartbeat starts to slow. Um, and just like your own heartbeat, uh, if if that happens in a network, that's a big problem. Um, if it slows too much, then eventually what you can have is collapse of the system system in terms of both uh, frequency, but also in voltage and and power. And um, and we have blackouts when that occurs. So basically, what Hornstyle Power Reserve is doing, um, and to put it again in, in, in sort of this sort of analogy, is it's a defib defibrillator for, for Australia. It's, it's regulating the heartbeat uh, of, of the network and making sure that as the network comes under stress, that heartbeat remains constant um, and, and stays at that 50 hertz within the normal operating band. And when it ventures outside of that, it, it pushes pushes and pulls on the network to try and keep it within that, that operating band. And you've mentioned a specific event uh, that happened on August the 25th um, in, in Australia. This is a lightning strike in Queensland. It basically caused the loss of a transmission line. Yep. It caused a massive drop in all um, the change in frequency and you probably explain that now better. So just, just go through as quickly okay. as you can the, the event and, and, and why the battery was able to respond so quickly. 
Okay, so, so let's start with what was happening in the network before the event, because that, that, that gives you a good feel for what happens afterwards. Um, and to give you a bit of context first, um, if you have an excess of generation compared to load in the network, frequency goes high. And if you have a lack of generation compared to the load in the network, the frequency drops. Okay, so all the states are connected uh, and everything is flowing quite nicely. This is, uh, this is before the event. Um, we have generation coming out of Queensland and feeding into New South Wales. And we have generation coming out of South Australia and feeding into Victoria. Uh, and New South Wales are also, and Victoria are also connected. We also have generation flowing between Tasmania and Victoria. Um, so lightning strike occurs, and the first thing that happens is that Queensland, the Queensland interconnector with New South Wales trips. Okay. At that moment, you've got too much generation in Queensland and not enough in the rest of the national electricity market. So the frequency in the national electricity market starts to drop, and it drops quite quickly. What the response that we have to that drop, um, in New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, they had to shed load. So they had to actually get rid of some of the large industrial loads and they literally switched the lights off at several large industri industrial facilities to try to stop that, that drop in frequency becoming terminal. Um, so your heartbeat stopping. Uh, in South Australia, the response from the battery was to push, immediately push power straight into the network. So we went from sitting roughly around about zero uh, megawatts output to 80 megawatts output within 0.1 of a second, or well, it was about 0.15 of a second. Um, and, and that was essentially the same kind of response uh, to, to instantaneously dropping loads in the other state. All well and good. All right, so, so but, but at this stage, we still had a problem. <laughs> frequency was still dropping across the NEM. Um, and once the frequency gets down to a certain point, the other interconnectors also start to, start to experience problems. And what we had uh, after the trip in Queensland was actually because the frequency kept dropping, um, the frequency between, uh, sorry, the interconnector between Victoria and South Australia had a subsequent trip. Um, at that point in time, uh, there was, there was a, um, a, a real issue because South Australia had been previously pushing power in to, to Victoria and New South Wales, where there was a lack of, a lack of energy. Um, and we, we essentially went the other way in South Australia. So once that link was gone, we had an excess of power in South Australia. And the battery immediately switched modes to charging and you'll see on the graphs provided by Oricon, we charged at about 20 megawatts to immediately absorb that overgeneration. Um, within, within the space of a number of seconds, uh, we were basically able to bring the frequency in South Australia back to the normal operating range. Um, and the beauty of it is even though uh, people lost power in, they lost power in New South Wales, they lost power in Victoria, they lost power in Tasmania, there was no loss of power to any consumers in South Australia. Uh, and the battery did the whole job. Um, and, you know, uh, roughly 20 minutes later when the interconnector was reconnected, uh, everything was back to system normal. Um, so it was a, it was a beautiful uh, demonstration of um, what the battery can do. It was also the first time, I mean, you can always drop load, right? You can trip load out of the network, but adding it in quickly is very hard to do. Uh, so that, that the battery's gone and done that function, which is the first time that's ever happened in Australia and potentially in the world, I'm not sure. Um, 
uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, everyone in South Australia was completely oblivious to the problems going on. Uh, so it was, it was a really great demonstration of what the, what the equipment can do. Um, it was a great demonstration that the control systems that we've set up and the, the system um, integrity protection scheme that we've set up with the battery is working perfectly. Um, and uh, you can see in the Oricon report in, in great detail um, that the moment by moment breakdown of that. Uh, but essentially, we've kept the lights on through a, a, a system event that would have otherwise caused the loss of load in, in South Australia. Xavier, it's, it's a fairly impressive story of what happened there. Um, it seems that this battery can do an awful lot, but not everything it can do is yet recognised by the market. How much work do we need to do to change and refashion the rules of the market so this technology can be fully recognised and fully deployed and we can actually sort of accelerate this transition to the clean energy future that we, that we want and need? Well, it always takes time before the benefits um, are fully recognised. But I think that we have already proven a lot in this first year of operation. It may be more explicit to South Australians than to the rest of the country. Uh, but I think that we'll continue to, to demonstrate what we can do, what this fantastic asset can do, not only in South Australia, but in other states. And uh, I think we are ready to do more, uh, not only um, in South Australia, but again in, in neighboring states. We are ready to answer that call. We are ready to invest, ready to develop new projects, ready to do some tailor-made project because there is no one solution that fits all needs. Uh, what NeoN does is precisely to think, um, uh, to, to think and to rethink every project and, and make sure that um, we make progress for, for every new project. There is much more to do um, in, in the field of storage. I think we have a great partnership with Tesla. Um, I think we have proven our point, and, and I think that more and more over time, we will be asked to uh, replicate that type of project or similar project, and we are already working, as we said, um, in Victoria. We would be happy to do that in Queensland as well, or um, in New South Wales. Uh, that's something that, that we plan to do. We have the means to invest. Uh, we have the local team. We have the local knowledge. and. Um, we are not the only ones for sure, but we have the ones that have uh, proven the ability uh, to deliver that battery in less than 100 days and to deliver those savings to South Australia, $40 million in just one year. So I think um, it's, um, let's say it speaks by itself. Well, thank you, Xavier. Thank you very much for joining us and um, thank you very much, Garth. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Xavier Barbaro, uh, the CEO of NeoN, and uh, Garth Heron, the development manager of NeoN. I also spoke very briefly with a Paul Gleeson from Oricon, an um, energy consultancy in Australia, and Paul did an independent study looking at some of the other details about the Tesla Big Battery, and I just thought it was just worth hearing his comments as well. So here's Paul. Paul Gleeson from Oricon, um, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Great to be here. Now, you have embarked on a major study looking at the performance of the Tesla Big Battery, or we should call it the Hornsdale Power Reserve, in its first 12 months. What struck you most from what you found? So what we, what we wanted to do was say, look, we've got a full year's data now on this asset. It's the first of its type. And what can we actually learn um, by delving right into that? And, and looking at its performance in a whole different range of um, scenarios that it faced in that first year. But look, the most overwhelming, to give you the short answer, the most overwhelming thing that hits you when you look at that data is the response times 
uh, of this asset. Yeah, it is. It really is remarkable to see. We've not ever had anything um, on the NEM that could go from zero to full output um, in uh, in a bit over 100 milliseconds. That um, is something that you know it becomes really interesting when you look at what that does for, particularly in the ancillary services market. I think as an engineer, it's exciting to me just because it's a it's a fun new gadget that we've got out there. But actually, what does it mean for consumers? It it has a big big impact. And what has that impact mean? I mean, you've quantified the savings. I think just from the FCAS market at around about forty million dollars, you know, in in savings to the consumer. Yeah, look, the the FCAS, the impact on the FCAS market uh, has has been profound. Um, it's complex in terms of that dollar value, how much of it's attributable to different things, but it's it's clear that HPR has had the biggest impact in in that reduction, uh, and why that's useful or interesting to consumers is that this new this new type of asset that's able to operate that quickly provides now those ancillary services in a far more cost-effective manner than the alternative. And there's also the, the simple fact in South Australia that it's provided more competition for those services. So in the last two years, in, in 2016 and 2017, there was very limited competition for those services and so the prices were high. So the two, two aspects is, yes, we've got a new player in there, but also it can now provide those services far more quickly and far more cost-effectively than, than any of the, um, the traditional providers. So what does this mean for the energy transition and for the way we look at the energy system? I mean, look, you know, the, the battery's been dismissed in some circles as you know, nothing more than a big banana or a Kardashian's or can't power the Tamago smelter for more than a couple of minutes or even a couple of seconds. Um, why are those criticisms not right and, and, and what does this mean for this transition? Uh, so, so look, this this is um, this is about understanding where we're at on the transition. I, I look at it as we are definitely in a phase of transition. Our generation fleet will continue to transition into a lower carbon future um, as our coal-fired units come to the end of their life over the next few decades, a couple of decades. We will see more and more penetration of renewables, certainly driven by cost. Wind and solar now being the lowest cost of new build generation. So. The, the role of batteries in phase one, if I call it that, of this transition is to resolve issues of very short-term system stability and system security. That question about um, how long can it power a big consumer or you know, can it get me through the night, those are questions that we'll need to tackle in phase two when we have even more renewables in the mix and we have to do load shifting from middle of the day to the evening, etc. We're not at that stage yet and that's not what HPR was designed to do. So there's actually lots of different components that are going to have to be brought into the grid to actually enable this sort of full transition from fossil fuel generators to a clean energy grid. That, look, absolutely. And you know, I think that's one of the challenges in Australia is that everyone always wants a, a simple solution. You know, everyone always asks me, is it this or is it this? And the answer is it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a hybrid of all of those things. And the key thing for the consumer is to understand that that, that hybrid will be based on the lowest cost, the lowest total cost. Okay, and so your f full report um, is available on your website for all the, all the energy wonks that want to go out there and uh, have a look at some of those detailed graphs. Yes, everyone's welcome to come and nerd out over all the data we've got there. We've tried to actually though, put it in a form that um, people who aren't just energy nerds can digest and enjoy it. I think it's going to uh, help to debunk a few myths out there and I think uh, you know, our, our desire was that it increased the understanding of the value that these assets provide um, 
here but also globally. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. And that was Paul Gleeson from Oricon. Um, David, I guess we've got this $20 billion, this 14 gigawatts of um, new wind and solar coming into the market this year. We will get more wind and solar coming in coming years. So I think these, um, this information about battery storage is very, very important. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what decisions we're going to see next, be it Snowy Hydro with Snowy 2.0, GenX, if it can get the financial close up on its uh, pumped hydro plant in um, next to the next to the big solar plant at the um, at the Kidston gold mine, um, and even Tasmania with its Battery of the Nation project. That's right. Uh, you know, one of the amusing but accurate points made in an article this week uh, by uh, uh, the Labor candidate in Warringah was to point out that uh, it doesn't rain every day, but uh, that doesn't mean we run out of water. <laughs> because we've got dams. And I mean, it's a very simple, but actually... <laughs> who, who, who is that remarkable candidate for the member of the... for, for, for Rohingya? <laughs> <laughs> but that was a very simple but effective point uh, uh, that was made uh, to point out that storage is going to be an essential complement to the wind and solar energy. And as usual, uh, when the politics don't uh, suit the market just gets on and this is the point the market is always going to find an answer the market doesn't wait for what some analyst thinks about is the good idea the market just gets on and reprices and does things uh, at a suitable time uh, and, and, and disrespected at your peril and so we're seeing a, a bunch of pumped hydro solutions emerging but we're also seeing batteries uh, emerging as they're either being forced in by AEMO or as the entrepreneurs see an advantage and we're seeing of course the South Australian, Victorian and very uh, Queensland and smaller Queensland and even smaller New South Wales household battery solutions and as usual with these small household ones you have to look at the totality of it. It's going to, when it's all done, uh, there will be a lot more storage in three years time, or four years time than there is now. Not to mention vehicles as well. Um... One of the things I did want to point out was the uh, interview uh, I did with um, Ivor Frischnit, the former uh, CEO of Arena. Now, we did a podcast interview with Ivor a couple of weeks ago, but since then he gave this solar oration at the Australian National University. And just on this issue about storage and going to high levels of renewables, he did his, his speech was about how do you get to 100% renewable energy? And it was interesting, he made the point that the technologies that we have are largely there. What is required is a different way of thinking. And in doing so, he just addressed some of the issues about baseload generation and why that really is no longer applicable in the future thinking about the grid, the role of demand management, the amount of storage required, the amount of peaking capacity and flexible generation and flexible demand that's required. And I think it's actually quite interesting because, you know, 100% renewables is not just throwing a whole bunch of wind and solar and storage onto the grid. It's actually sort of rethinking the, about the way it um, it is done. And uh, just to sort of touch back on that um, um, other storage that you mentioned with household batteries, we going to see the first of the electric vehicles come into the market next week with vehicle to grid technology that'll be the Nissan Leaf very very small at the start probably a couple of kilowatt hours or maybe even a megawatt hour of it but um, sometime in the future it's um, I think vehicle to grid could be a really interesting storage and flexible demand and um, storage um, supply option for the grid and um, I've actually been lucky enough uh, 
over the last couple of weeks to have some test drives of the um, Hyundai Ionic electric vehicle and also the Jaguar I-Pace electric vehicle and um, I've actually done a couple of recordings for the Driven podcast which you can also find on either the Driven website or the Renew Economy website um, or your favourite podcast platform. David, um, I suppose we should thank our sponsors today, uh, Watchers and Solaray Energy, and thanks for their support throughout 2018, and um, even before that, we uh, we really do appreciate it. I guess next week, um, the final week, a final lurch of um, action with the uh, Energy Security Board, the COAC Energy Minister's meeting, and maybe something from Snowy Hydro. That's right, and uh, I think it's been a great year for the behind-the-meter industry, and uh, I hope they enjoy their Christmas because I'm pretty sure every year won't be as good as this year, but uh, it has been a fantastic year, and that, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, I think there's a lot of lessons, uh, Giles, for, our, for us in here in Australia to learn from overseas, from, from what's going on in the United States and Europe, and I, I hope we can continue to, to uh, focus on that. And I want to point out that as, as, uh, with all this uh, new technology and storage coming in, that we do need to focus on the transmission and making sure that that keeps up. As I've often said, it's, that's the part that takes the longest and will be the slowest and, and uh, needs to have the focus on it all the time to make sure that when we need that transmission, it's actually going to be there. One of the little teasers I'll put out there is there's been a lot of concern about the MLF factor uh, but I noticed that in some jurisdictions overseas, including in Texas, they don't have MLFs. Uh, 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 and, and so that's just interesting to see how other, other people have been able to do it differently. But yeah. Well, we hope to have an interview from um, one of the senior executives from um, the Texas grid, I think, next week, David. Is that right? And just, um, just to sort of unravel one of your acronyms, um, MLF is marginal loss factors. And that's basically the equation that supplies, if you've got a solar farm or even a coal-fired power station for that matter, a long, long way from demand, then you're not credited with the full amount of output that you send through the uh, substation next to your power generator. You're basically credited with what is assumed to have arrived at the other end. So I guess what we hear from what you're suggesting about Texas is that um, it's actually the grid operator that takes the risk on that component rather than the actual developer. There's more than one way to do it. And so uh, but let's, let's uh, leave it there and keep thinking about these things. Good on you, David. Thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.